1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Moses Lappin, and today I'm joined by Professor Luis Cortest for a discussion about his new book, Philo's Heirs, Moses Maimonides and Thomas Aquinas, published by Academic Studies Press in 2017. Professor Cortest is professor of medieval Spanish literature at the University of Oklahoma. The tensions between reason and revelation, between the Hebrew Bible and Greek philosophy, were central to pre-modern philosophy and in a sense remain so today. We live in a world beholden to both religious and the secular as ways of understanding ourselves and the world around us. When and how did this begin? In his ambitious studies, Professor Cortes forcefully argues that at the center of this tradition stands the writings of Philo-Judaeus, a Hellenistic philosopher who lived in Alexandria in the first century. Long forgotten and marginalized, in Philo, Cortes finds a method of thinking and a set of questions That he argues came to dominate the course of medieval philosophy. Although he was not quoted directly, Philo's Heirs uncovers a subtle genealogy from Philo to Moses Maimonides and Thomas Aquinas through the Church Fathers and Islamic Neoplatonic philosophy. The central chapters of the book focus on a comparison of Aquinas and Maimonides on the themes of metaphysics and divine attributes, on creation, divine providence, natural law, and prophecy. In each case, Cortes finds a synthesis of Greek philosophy and the Bible that had its origins in the writings of Philo. Philo's Heirs reframes these topics, asking us to think again about the long history of philosophy in the West and our deaths to both the Greeks and to the Bible. More profoundly, it forces us to ask about the ways in which the tensions between Athens and Jerusalem remain with us today. In a sense, we remain Philo's Heirs. I'm happy to have Professor Cortes on the show with us today. Your book is fascinating and very bold in the sense that it covers a large swath of time, um, as well as delving deeply into philosophic topics in different contexts. Um, In the Greek context in in Egypt, in which Philo lived, um, in the Muslim Jewish context in which Maimonides lived, and the scholastic Christian context in which Aquinas lived. Um, And before we get into the book itself and um, the way in which you chose to structure the book, I would like to begin with a little bit of a background question, and that is to discuss Philo himself. Uh, The book is titled Philo's Heirs, Um, and in a sense, although much of the book is about a comparison between Maimonides and Aquinas, you deal at length with Philo um, and the legacy of his thought. So who was Philo, and why is he important to medieval philosophy?
0: Philo was uh, a Jewish philosopher um, in the Platonic tradition. Uh, sometimes called uh, a middle Platonist, uh, because he comes in that period, the period where um, we find a number of very important uh, philosophers uh, during really the great age of Alexandria. Um, Philo himself lives from approximately... 25 the year 25 before our era and about uh, to the year about 50 um 50 um afterwards so he's living really uh during the age of uh of Jesus the apostles and Paul um he's a Jew who lives in Alexandria which is really the great center for the for the diaspora and it's a great center for Jewish life and Philo himself inherits the great traditions of the philosophers that have come before him the great traditions in Greek philosophy he's familiar with those traditions he's also familiar with Roman philosophy that that is uh, uh the philosophy of people who live at about the same time in Rome he he has a Great philosophical knowledge, what makes Philo though especially interesting to me and I would hope to others is that he's really the first of the great philosophers who is able to to bring his knowledge of Greek philosophy to bear on sacred texts the, the the hebrew bible he he reads with with that kind of knowledge with that kind of training so that he's able to interpret biblical texts from a philosophical point of view that's very sophisticated and after his time the way he reads that that method he uses for interpretation is, is used for century after century after century mostly by by christians from early on the time of clement of alexandria the time of the time of uh of, of some of the other philosophers from that from that age uh we already have christians following in his tradition using his method maybe it's possible that not as many uh, Jews early on followed this tradition, but that philosophy, that method of doing philosophy, the way he does it, is later picked up uh, in the Middle Ages by uh, philosophers of the tradition of the Kalam, the, the Islamic scholastic philosophers, the Mutakalimun, but also um, uh, you know many Islamic, many Christian philosophers, and and I think my thesis in the book is that Maimonides, the great Jewish philosopher who dies early in the 13th century, uh, in method at least, in, in, in his perhaps most famous philosophical book, the Mores de the Guide for the Perplexed, follows the same method. He addresses many of the same questions as Philo. He uses a method similar to Philo's, and then later, of course, Thomas Aquinas, the greatest of the Christian Scholastics, who dies in twelve seventy four, takes up many of the same questions in his in his works, uh, the Two Summae. He also is. Thomas, discusses natural law, divine providence, prophecy, and many other issues in the same way that we see the questions addressed by Philo.
1: Before we get into the specific topics, um, as you mentioned, you've picked five themes, sort of a, a curriculum or, or a certain set of questions um, that Philo set up um, and that Aquinas and Maimonides deal with explicitly. Um, Let's return to what you mentioned about method. Um, You write in the introduction to your book that, in effect, Philo taught Christian writers how to read allegorically and how to use the language and methods of philosophy to explicate Christian doctrine. Um, So how did he do this, and can you give us some examples of his allegorical reading? Before the time of Philo... Um,
0: people who who employed a kind of philosophical reading to read let's say uh Homer uh, allegorical reading that is looking for a, for a second level um this sort of thing existed before Philo what Philo does though is he takes that method that method that, that already exists and he applies it to to Hebrew bible so that he can take for example episodes from the life of Moses, from the Moses we know from Scripture, and, and explain things philosophical or, or explain how Moses has a philosophical of understand, understanding of law, of, of all things, really. In fact, for Philo, Moses is, is a model of philosophical understanding. Um, he doesn't see him as a, a, a someone who is... Who is not philosophical who who doesn't who doesn't understand things philosophical phil- philosophically in fact he's he's in a way the perfect philosopher because he not only understands the law he not only is the master of law he's the greatest prophet he's he's gifted in a way no other prophet is because of his relation his direct relationship with god he also is a leader of his people so he's the embodiment of the philosophical leader he's all these things and i, I would say that that just reading like um Philo's life of Moses, you get the feeling that he, he understands every episode in Moses' life is uh, an example of philosophical understanding.
1: One of the points you bring out um, again and again in the book, but let, let's talk about it at least now with regards to Philo, um, is about the sort of standard philosophic topics um, that he explicates. Um, and in the book you outline five that you, you focus on. Um, so we said prophecy and, um, creation, natural law, divine providence, um, and divine attributes. Um, if we were to place Philo in his context, can you point out the ways in which at that time what he was doing was unique? Um, who was he in dialogue with at the time that he was writing?
0: That's a really good question. And, um, You have to ask, well, who would the people have been? Who would his readers have been? Some of them surely would have been other um, Middle Platonists, that is, Platonic philosophers living at the same time. But I have a feeling that his audience uh, is probably an audience of educated Jews who live at the same time. Uh, in Alexandria. I, I really think this because the the issues, the questions, if we think of them, the divine attributes, divine providence, prophecy, these are issues that are very important for the way Jews understand the world. Well, there are, of course, uh, you know, philosophical discussions of, of divine attributes, but it would be like uh, um, within the context of, of, of let's say, uh platonic philosophy uh what exactly how how can we describe maybe the the essence the being of, of 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 the one but in in philo when he talks about divine attributes he's talking about god's divine attributes the attributes uh which we would apply negatively for the most part it's an apophatic system that is uh it's we know what God is by knowing what God is not. Um, when he talks about divine attributes, he's talking about it in a theistic context, in a Jewish context. When he talks about um, divine providence, in the same way, it's in a, in a Jewish sense. I, I would, I strongly defend the idea that that Philo was a Jewish philosopher, that he understood things as a Jew. that, that His Jewishness is part of his philosophy; it shapes. All his philosophy
1: you set out in in your chapters about Philo to to argue this point. I mean, it, it's something that in in Philo's scholarship is greatly debated. Uh, here was a Jew living in Alexandria who wrote um in Greek, how much Hebrew did he know? how Jewish was he? um and and one of the questions that your book seeks to answer, in a sense, is as much about Aquinas and Maimonides as it is about Philo in the sense that um although Philo, for example, in the case of Maimonides, was not quoted explicitly, um, you argue very strongly and in, in a subtle way that it doesn't take explicit references to show the influence, um, and you show the way in which he set up not only a method of reading, um, but also these these series of topics that come up again and again that he set sort of set the agenda for. Um, returning back to Philo himself, before we continue on with with Maimonides and Aquinas, um, your argument is that that Philo is really a Jew and should be seen as as writing in a sense for a Jewish audience. What was his reception among Christians, uh, among the church fathers who sort of lived between his period and the period under discussion um, in the high Middle Ages? So what, what was his reception among Christians? Did they perceive him as Jewish? And how were they able to adapt this sort of Jewish thinking, I guess, or this synthesis between um, monotheistic thinking and, and Greek philosophy?
0: Well, I think it's a really, uh, it's a special question because um, really, I think, quite honestly, um, after Jerome, St. Jerome talked the way he did about Philo, he, he sort of Christianizes Philo. I'm sure that there were many Christian thinkers who believed uh, that that philo was actually a christian or that philo had accepted christianity i think this is a a common view for a long long time so that they they're not really in their minds the some of the early christian thinkers uh adopting so much the the thinking of a jew or thinking that is jewish as much as they are accepting or adopting a system that that's developed in the beginning by by this thinker who was probably jewish in the beginning but but converted to christianity and i don't think that's unusual i think we see this this uh, this kind of interpretation of of jewish thinkers uh, for centuries after philo you know it's believed oh this one this thinker was was surely a Christian or he's surely converted and uh, of course a great authority like Jerome when Jerome tells us that, that that Philo actually you know had converted to Christianity this is uh that would that would be enough for for many many Christian thinkers to say yes uh, this this is the truth about Philo. Of course historically there's no evidence that
1: Philo ever <laughs> converted to Christianity. Right I mean I guess what you would come to then is the way in which philo was rediscovered as a jew um or really i mean maybe in a bolder sense what your book is about is the type of the ways in which this is more universal um than specific to either jews or christians or greeks or romans um i guess one question that may be interesting to people and and, and certainly is interesting to me particularly after reading the book and and sort of force of the argument is the question of why philo was forgotten i mean here is somebody who wrote prolifically, who had a wide influence, um, at his time on Christians and on, on Jews ultimately, um, and set up such an interesting and unique way of thinking. One would imagine that he would have been more famous today than, than he is. So what do you attribute this sort of forgetting of of Philo, um, and particularly in not placing Philo in this genealogy as sort of a forefather of medieval philosophy?
0: I'm going to try to be bold in my answer. I think that um with the advent of uh, really rabbinic judaism judaism in in some ways takes a, 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 a well there's a different approach um it's it's more i suppose um limited uh to a a Jewish context and the way rabbinic writers write is not the same as the way philo writes in fact I think that um, philo's kind of philosophy his his language is clearly not the the language of of rabbinic Judaism he's he's very much in the not in in the subjects he touches upon but in method he's very much a, a Greek philosopher also um really philo is as i said before perhaps in different words is, is adopted and embraced by christians even far more than by jews uh, it's also important to think that philo um as you stated before um May not have been that knowledgeable about Hebrew. I mean, the the Hebrew Bible he knows is is in Greek. You know, it's 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 the Greek version. It's the it's the text he knows. And if you look at uh, the the Greek explanation, or the Greek beginning, I should say, of in Genesis of creation, the explanation of creation, and then you look at Plato's Timaeus, the language is very similar. So he's Philo is very Greek. He's he's working in a Greek tradition, uh, but he is Jewish, and, and his and his subjects are Jewish. But he's he's more in line with Greek philosophy in terms of method, and also as I th- I think uh, Jewish thinking to a large extent with rabbinic Judaism, maybe takes a, a different direction and there's probably some suspicion of of the of the Greek tradition, which as we know for the most part, is a, a tradition that um, is, of course, uh, not a tradition that embraces revealed religion at all, and it's even, in many instances, hostile to revealed religion.
1: And in terms of the scholarship today over the last uh, 200 years, um, why do you think, or or how do you think, really, uh, Philo has been thought of um, as this figure, I mean, you open up the book with uh, talking about Harry Wolfson, who wrote a, uh, an influential book on Philo and tried to create this sort of narrative where Philo was the beginnings of, of medieval philosophy. Um, but his voice is, in a sense, a lone voice. So the intervention that you're trying to make in, in echoing uh, Wolfson and, and rethinking about Philo and his influence on uh, medieval philosophy um, is an intervention. And, and why do you see that intervention is necessary why was it he, why was he not somebody who was uh remembered and, and thought of more highly
0: that uh, you know you you have um a philosopher who um in the west Unfortunately, um, the philosophers who have been studied traditionally have been really the, the giants. So that you have, if, if people only study uh, philosophy from the point of view of, of the, the, the old manuals of philosophy, the, the traditional way that uh, Western philosophy was taught, you Of course, you, you have Plato, and there's a long discussion of, of Socrates, but Plato and his works, which we, we have so many preserved, and then of course Aristotle, you have all that tradition, and then p- typically people jump to Plotinus. This is just the way it was traditionally done, and you sort of skip that that middle group. And then when it comes to the Middle Ages, they skip centuries. And then they go maybe to the period of high scholasticism. They may or may not include Maimonides. And then they jump to Aquinas and they move on further and then they come right to Descartes. I mean, I think that's, I don't think I'm wrong if I'm saying this is the way many, many, many people studied philosophy. And and now it's probably worse because they probably uh, study even less history than before. Now it's just philosophy of language. But but getting back to the question of, of Philo, Philo's kind of, he's, he's not... Plato. He's not Aristotle. He's a little different. he, He comes at a time when we think there probably weren't any great philosophers. My argument would be that actually the one who shaped the way philosophy was done until the time of Spinoza, uh, was Philo. And the person who who said this and wrote about this and inspired me to write about it was Harry Wolfson. Harry Wolfson was this giant uh, in the U.S. who, who taught at Harvard. He was really maybe... I don't know maybe the the first professor of judaic studies in the US certainly he was the first director of any kind of big judaic studies program but this is a man who had a tremendous background he studied as a young man uh, in you know in a yeshiva uh, he had come to the US fairly young he he then went straight to Harvard he went straight through Harvard got a PhD never left Harvard he was the uh, except for military service, he 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 was a lifelong Harvard Harvard uh, scholar, and his work that that work on Philo, uh, I think first published in about nineteen thirty four, Foundations of Religious Philosophy in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and that's that's just that's a masterpiece. He he knew the medieval writers, he knew the ancients, he knew Greek. And his argument about Philo being the one who taught the West uh, a method of philosophy that survived until the time of Spinoza, that's a very, very bold claim. But my book, really, the the whole point of my book, really, is to argue that and to show with, with, with these specific examples that Wolfson's thesis was correct, Philo was the one who did show the west uh, how how to do philosophy in this way and i think that uh, that accomplishment is just just absolutely amazing um it's also true that among people who study philosophy traditionally there has been uh for a long time um, maybe this is changing this is changing uh in our own time but a great prejudice against the religious philosophers i would say and and philo um not only uh, lives at a time when we think uh, there are only minor figures these middle platonists but he's also a religious philosopher and uh, in fact i <laughs> i think that the truth is he's not only one of the giants of philosophy philosophy he's perhaps one of the, the greatest of all philosophical theologians and and most of all i agree with wolfson in his assessment of philo's impact that he was in fact the one who taught the west how to do philosophy in a method that was the method that survived you know Uh, until the
1: 17th century. Could you bridge for us um, this period of time from Philo to uh, Aquinas and Maimonides? What was the reception, I guess, in one sense of the image of of Philo himself, um, but more particularly of his allegorical method um, and the certain set of questions that he set up?
0: If If you look through the Guide for the Perplexed of Maimonides, what you see is a book uh, in, in which Maimonides explains Judaism philosophically and text after text from from scripture from Torah is explained philosophically that's what Maimonides does Maimonides understands that that's how philosophy is done because Maimonides lives in the age of of the great Islamic philosophers, he inherits uh, their tradition, the tradition of the Kalam, Islamic scholastic philosophy. He's a he's also an Aristotelian, but his it's, his Aristotelianism is greatly influenced by Neoplatonism. It's it's a it's a Neoplatonic Aristotelianism. Now Aquinas is very much is very similar in that he's an Aristotelian, yes, but uh, but as, as scholars have been showing now for, for 50 years, Aquinas' uh, Aristotelianism is also greatly shaped by Neoplatonism. So uh, neither Aquinas nor Maimonides are pure Aristotelians. They're Aristotelians with, with this... Um, a Neoplatonic Neoplatonic uh, twist, but they both interpret Scripture. They want to understand religion. Maimonides, Judaism, Thomas Aquinas, uh, uh, Christi- Christian, the Christian religion. They want to understand religion and explain religion philosophically, so that people, in the case of Maimonides, maybe a young person who, who, who. who is perplexed. Who says? Look, I I, I want to see how uh, uh, reason and religion are compatible. In Thomas Aquinas' case, he he writes his great Summa for for students. This is a a textbook for 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 students who are learning, who are being trained. In philosophical theology, and and how do they how do they uh, approach? Well, they how do they approach their questions? They they both have this this Aristotelian Neoplatonic um, framework uh, and the method, and they're using it, they're applying their reading to to biblical texts because for them biblical texts are true texts, they're expressions of truth, and and they must. They must be comprehensible philosophically, and I think in both cases they try to explain the, their, their their religions uh, with this philosophical method. And it's the method, I say, uh, well, Wolfson said was first introduced by Philo.
1: Could you expand a little bit on this point about philosophy and religion as the means of understanding truth? Because I think, in a sense, this really lies at the heart of the book, Um and really, the heart of maybe Philo's project, I think people would normally say that maybe philosophy and religion are opposed to one another um, in their quests for in the quest for discovering truth. Um, you know, people might think that philosophy is able to be critical um, and perhaps more objective or unbiased. Or on the other hand, people might criticize philosophy on the side of religion and say, well, it doesn't deal with revealed truths or metaphysics um, or things of that nature. So. These three thinkers, and and particularly the school of of, of Philo, the heirs of Philo that you outline, how did they think of philosophy and religion? And how was Philo able to create a synthesis between these two disciplines that people see as opposed to one another?
0: All you have to do is uh, look around in our own time, um... People typically take philosophy seriously. That is, they think, yes, uh, this person um, has a profound understanding of this or that question, this or that subject, and and these philosophical proofs are very impressive. They take philosophical um, disputation seriously to a point, but often, very often, especially people who are, who are trained in the academy at secular institutions like like my alma mater, the University of California, Berkeley, they don't take religion seriously at all. So they say, okay, it's okay to do philosophy, but this religious stuff, it's all a bunch of superstition. Now, for a man like Philo, Philo was not only a philosopher, he was a philosopher who took revealed religion seriously, believing that what was revealed was true as true or more true than any philosophical question, any philosophical conclusion. So his method, his way of approaching um, his religion, which is dear to him, which is true, is philosophical. He wants to understand religion in a sophisticated way, in a way that shows great learning, Uh, in a way that shows profound understanding and also profound analysis. Uh, One way we show uh, our our sophistication as readers is by analyzing something very, very carefully. And, And Philo understood that. And when he reads biblical texts, you may not agree with his interpretation, but you have to say, what an amazing Analysis. What an amazing conclusion he reaches here. Maimonides is also an incredible reader of 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 Torah. One of the great masters, of course. And Aquinas, as a biblical commentator, is is outstanding, and he he understands and takes takes it very very seriously. For him, what's true is re- revealed religion is more true than philosophy. But philosophy gives us the lexicon to talk about what is most true, which is re- revealed religion.
1: Well, let, let's talk about some of these issues ourselves then, um, and let's talk about Maimonides and Aquinas. Um, and the ways in which you compare and contrast them in the main part of the book. Um, so as I mentioned previously, you outline five particular sort of themes, uh, topics that they inherit from Philo. Um, and what you do is you sort of read Aquinas and Maimonides against or with one another. Um, so before we get onto to the specific topics, what was it about this comparison, Aquinas and Maimonides? Um, what stood out to you? Why do you think that this comparison was necessary? Um, and maybe just a little bit of background about both of them for uh people who may be new to uh saint thomas aquinas and moses maimonides
0: moses maimonides is the greatest of the medieval um, jewish philosophers in my opinion um and he is really that that w- the thinker we most remember as the person who wants, wanted to harmonize religion and philosophy. He wrote this very special book, the guide for the perplexed, Nebulim, where he, where he tries to, to explain, tries to show how religion can be explained. Now Judaism can be explained, um, uh, philosophically. Now, He's a giant, and Thomas Aquinas is, is really the, the giant among the medieval Christian philosophers. He's the greatest of the Christian scholastics. And Thomas Aquinas actually knew uh, the guide for the perplexed. We know this because he does quote directly from Maimonides. He considered Maimonides... uh a great authority. Uh, but he, he disagrees with Maimonides on um, yeah. a number of points. He speaks of Maimonides as an adversary because that's what philosophers do. They They talk about the ones who have come before them and typically what they want to do is show that what the person said before them, the philosopher who preceded them, was wrong about something and they want to show that. I mean, if you look at you look at Aristotle over and over and over again, this is what he does. He shows how those who preceded him were wrong. Thomas Aquinas does the same, Maimonides uh, does the same thing but Maimonides is 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 the great jewish philosopher so great i think that the jewish philosophers always look back to Maimonides those who who have come since Maimonides always look back to Maimonides and many of the questions that that people address philosophically in that in, in that tradition uh, go go back to Maimonides and they they refer to him in the same way thomas aquinas Thomistic thinking, the the teachings of the Thomists, these these are teachings that are very, very much a part of Christian theology today. People quote from Aquinas often and he, he continues to be uh the great master of, of Christian theology for many people, especially the traditionalists. Thomas Aquinas knows. This great work, the Guide for the Perplexed, and he, he often talks about Maimonides, or as he calls him often Rabbi Moses, as a, a philosophical opponent. And he, he will, he will disagree with Maimonides, in, very much in the tradition of, of philosophers, always. I mean, if we go back to the works of Aristotle, Aristotle always talked about his predecessors and how his philosophy is a corrective. He says he, he often talks about how the people before him, the philosophers writing before him were wrong. And uh, well, Maimonides in the same way talks about many who have come before him and how wrong they are, especially uh, philosophers in the tradition of the Kalam, the Islamic scholastic philosophy. Thomas Aquinas also uh, he uses the philosophy of those who have come before him. He knows it, he studies it uh and he often disagrees with people writing before his time, so they're they're very much alike in that way. Maimonides is uh the master of of Jewish philosophy who for centuries after his time is still. Uh, considered the master for many, and he's certainly a philosopher that any serious Jewish philosopher for several centuries after his time had to had to take on as as one of the one of the required opponents. Thomas Aquinas has shaped the way christian um theologians do philosophy for for centuries and centuries there are many people who now would say perhaps that they reject the teachings of thomas aquinas but thomas aquinas's theological ideas are are still very much a part of uh, especially roman catholic thinking but also anglican thinking and uh um Christian philosophers in general, if they're serious about uh, the history of Christian philosophy, have to address uh, questions raised by Thomas Aquinas.
1: The first theme that you outline in your book um, as a theme that was raised by, uh, raised by Philo um, and then came under discussion by both uh, Maimonides and Aquinas is the question of divine attributes. Um, And this is a central question to many medieval theologians and philosophers. So I guess, first of all, what are divine attributes and and how does Philo raise this as a topic? Um, And then I guess the follow up question is about Maimonides and Aquinas. How did they receive uh, Philo's conception of divine attributes?
0: well first of all if i if I say that Maimonides or thomas Thomas Aquinas received a teaching from Philo it's always is i want to make this clear it's it's indirect right there. They're not quoting directly from Philo, but if one looks at Philo's discussion of the divine attributes and and if one studies how how he approaches this whole question. Through the via negativa that is uh, we understand the divine attributes by knowing what god is not by talking a, in a way that that enables us to understand how we we're not to talk about god the attributes that don't belong to god it's this this way of of talking about god the the apophatic tradition philo really is is one one of the great masters of that tradition and the way he does this is his whole discussion of divine attributes, uh negative attributes, as God is not this, God is not that, God is not this. You understand that this discussion has a tremendous has tremendous resonance and has a tremendous impact, especially on early Christian thinkers who 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 approach the question in the same way. And and that divine attributes discussion which we find in philo we find over and over and over again in christian writers in the middle ages uh and then of course maimonides picks up the same question and he handles it in much the same way which makes me wonder if maybe there were some some links between maimonides and philo we don't know about uh texts where we You know we can't be sure about in the case of Thomas Aquinas, he talks about divine a- attributes in the same way again, via negativa we know that he quotes from the church fathers, and that those church fathers um many many of this uh, of these church fathers knew knew Philo knew about Philo's discussion and knew about Philo's approach
1: another one of the themes that you see as uh continuing from Philo um through to Aquinas and Maimonides, is the question of divine providence, um, God's role or influence uh, on the world, either directly or indirectly. Um, And that's something that had great interest to Jews, Christians, Muslims, um, from antiquity all the way to the early modern and modern periods. What was Philo's position on this? And how do you set that against uh, Maimonides and Aquinas? Uh, How did they see divine providence? And how do you see this as being influenced by Philo?
0: Divine providence is really a theme that is addressed, um, in a very sophisticated way by, by philosophers like Seneca. Uh, um, you'll find in, in, in Roman philosophy, in the Stoics, uh, a lot of discussion about divine providence. What, what makes, uh, Philo um, different is that he understands God in a different way he understands the god his his he understands God as the god of of Abraham the god of moses the the god of isaac he's he's talking about God in terms of the the God we know from 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 the Bible from scripture it's not he doesn't have just an abstract notion. Of the one, or some abstract notion of, of 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 some being with whom no 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 text is is connected. There is no revealed religion in the discussions of divine providence we find before Philo, or even in Philo's time outside the Jewish world. Um, Philo's the one talking about divine providence. Well, uh, he's talking about divine providence in a, in in a way that a Jew would understand divine providence, or a Christian would understand divine providence, but he's talking about it philosophically, which adds another dimension. Also, that discussion of divine providence and how it is to be understood philosophically um, has a long history, and you find one philosopher after another talking about this question. In fact, a good example is the one of the classics of medieval Philosophy is, is Boethius. Boethius contrasting divine providence with Fortuna. Fortune says Fortuna is what we see. This is we as human beings living, uh, living on Earth. We, we as human beings, we see what looks like chaos all around us. Divine providence, Divina Providentia, is what God sees. And there, there is order. It is all order. Uh, that, that distinction is very is very, very important in medieval philosophy. Maimonides has to talk about divine providence. One of the things he he needs to address is, well, why do bad things happen to good people? Right? This is a very important question in any discussion of divine providence. And uh, Aquinas, of course, again takes up the question of divine providence, and he has the whole history of of a philosophy Right at, at his fingertips and he can talk about it as Boethius does Boethius is a very very important source for Thomas but he, he can talk about it as in, as the way the Stoics do again that Latin philosophy is very important Roman Latin Stoic philosophy is very important for Aquinas he talks about divine providence in that way but he also talks about divine providence again uh, within the context of revealed religion so Philo, Maimonides and Thomas all talk about divine providence, but not just in some abstract way and in a way that's connected with with, uh, with revealed religion.
1: The final theme I want to touch on today um, is chapter seven in your book, and that's on natural law. Um, and I imagine that people who, who are interested in natural law um, either see a very modern genealogy for it or see a genealogy that goes back to to Roman law, um, and to the Stoics. What you present here is something I think that that's very challenging to that, um, seeing the source for a lot of uh, concepts in natural law, um, and particularly those concepts that are brought out in Maimonides and Aquinas, you see them sourced in Philo. Um, So beginning with Philo, what was his conception of natural law, and why why was it so original? Um, And then how do you see this in comparison with uh, the scholastic natural law and the natural law that's uh, suggested by Maimonides and Aquinas?
0: Well, when you see the way Philo talks about natural law, he talks about the Essenes and uh, the way they live, the values they embrace, and so on. It's clearly a discussion of natural law. That is, law in a very uh, philosophical sense. uh in which it's not that law is not based on it's neither based on custom nor is it based on tradition but rather based on a natural way of seeing how things fit together how things work together in a natural way in the world in which we live and philo talks about this uh in a way that's very different And to my mind, he should be considered one of the greatest of of all defenders of natural law. It's curious that you do have discussions of natural law. I mean, think of uh, Sophocles and and of course, uh, Antigone, where we we clearly see, you know, uh, references to a law that is natural, that is beyond the laws that are written. Um, There is a a place in the nicomachean ethics where aristotle also mentions again a law that is a law that is that is that is not written that's the law beyond the law but the way philo talks about natural law with very clear examples and show, bringing out the implications of what natural law would how a a community that embraced natural law would live would act is very very impressive impressive and very different and very original and i think in that way he's he's one of the great founders of of natural law tradition of course maimonides um is 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 medieval he's he, he he has a whole he has a whole series of different traditions that come before him, and he can talk about natural law also uh, within those philosophical traditions. But he can also talk about the the, the, the Noahide laws that, where he says, and there are laws even in our own. Even in our own teachings as Jews, there are, are laws that are applicable to all people, not just to Jews. These are the, Jew, these are the laws that, that form a foundation of what I would call a, a Jewish natural law. And so he can point specifically to that point and talk about those laws in a way that clearly constitutes a, a discussion of natural law tradition. Thomas Aquinas, even though he is is the section in the Summa on natural law is really very short, that discussion is the foundation for all subsequent discussions of natural law tradition, really in Christian circles. He is the master of natural law, even though as I say the 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 section in the Summa is very short where he talks about law in general and then the short section on natural law, just a few questions, but he really lays out the philosophical foundations for natural law, where he he has this long discussion of the difference between the speculative intellect and the practical intellect. the speculative understands things from a purely philosophical point of view. The practical intellect has to include discussions of how we are to act. There within that tradition, we find this wonderful discussion of natural law and Thomas. And of course, for him, the practical intellect is is informed by the speculative intellect. And I talk about uh, all of this in that section of the book.
1: To conclude, can you give us a hint as to what the afterlife um, of this tradition is. Um were there further heirs of Philo after Maimonides and Aquinas? How did people understand Maimonides and Aquinas in relationship um to Philo? Uh, we know that during the Renaissance there was a a renewed interest in Philo. Um and I'm interested in the ways in which um you see the setup the 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 narrative that you've presented uh playing out after uh the High Middle Ages.
0: Yes. I don't there's no question because In the same way that Maimonides, as a philosopher, survives, um, his the debates that uh, the Jews would have about Maimonides long after Maimonides was gone um, are a clear indication of the fact that the tradition, the philosophical tradition of Maimonides, survives. Thomas Aquinas' philosophical teachings are are addressed over and over and over again. His discussion of natural law is is the discussion that inspires the debates in the 16th century about whether or not native peoples are human beings, whether or not this is the 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 debate at Valladolid in Spain, uh, 1551, about whether or not. Um, as Bartolomé de las Casas said, the native peoples are human beings and they should be treated as human beings and the societies in which they live should be considered legitimate societies and we do not have the right to conquer these peoples or to enslave them. That whole discussion is a natural law discussion that comes from Thomas Aquinas. Maimonides, of course, is you know, the philosopher, the for Jewish uh, tradition, is is the one whose whose ideas are challenged um, from his time forward. And of course, what Wolfson argued was that Philo's way of doing philosophy survived until the time of uh, survived until the the time of Spinoza. Now, the reason he says that is because it was Spinoza himself who decided to break with that tradition. So it was Spinoza who who addresses Maimonides. He says he disagrees with Maimonides on so many questions. He takes a different turn. And for Wolfson, who is the inspiration for me in a way for the for the book, uh, really Spinoza is this this very 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 important figure uh, in the history of Western philosophy perhaps as important or more than Rene Descartes. Certainly the same set of topics is a set of topics that will will continue to at least the year 1600. And I think the method, the allegorical method, the allegorical way of interpreting scriptures, of course, is of profound importance for, for philosophers up uh, up into the 17th century. So I think, Philo's, Philo's method Philo's topics uh, the method and the topics survive for centuries after the high middle ages, but also the teachings of Maimonides survive the Jewish thinkers after Maimonides uh, again and again and again go back to Maimonides and address questions that Maimonides addressed, which are I say fall within this Philonic tradition and of course Thomas Aquinas is the master of of Christian theology for centuries and centuries and centuries and uh, Christian theologians after the time of, of Aquinas will, will go back to Aquinas over and over and over again and they'll talk about things like natural law very much in the tradition of Thomas Aquinas. So they, oh, of course this has a long afterlife and my, uh, I think part of what I wanted to do, my project was to see if if Wolfson's thesis was right about Maimonides and was right regarding uh, Philo, that is that Philo and the way of Philo, the way Philo taught us to do philosophy, the way Philo uh, led the way in terms of this philosophical discussion of of revealed religion um, held true in the time of Maimonides and Aquinas and my Conclusion is that abs- it absolutely did hold true in that time, and uh, you know if I can if I had continued with a second volume of the book, I would have shown how philosophers after Maimonides and Aquinas up to about the year sixteen hundred continued in the very same tradition.
1: I would like to conclude by thanking Professor Luis Cortes for joining us on New Books in Jewish Studies. Um, we've been talking about his book Philos, Errors, Moses Maimonides, and Thomas Aquinas published by Academic Studies Press in 2017.